This podcast is sponsored by NCC Group. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and our guest for this episode is Wayne Scott, Regulatory Compliance Solutions Lead at NCC Group. Wayne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And with Wayne on the show this week, the main topic of discussion will be around uh, risk mitigation, particularly software resilience and software escrow in relation to the regulations around outsourcing and third-party risk management. We'll chat about the work NCC is doing in this field and the evolving regulatory landscape for financial institutions a little later in the show. Um, But first, as always, is our news in numbers segment. This is where our guest has gone out and found a news story featuring an interesting number to discuss and get us started. So, Wayne, what have you brought along for us today? Uh, It was an article on Fintech Futures from uh, mid-March, basically, in which um, HSBC are to shutter 69 of UK branches and as more and more customers move online. It it says within the article uh, that maybe less than 50% of the customers now actively use the branch network. And it's not really signaling out um, HSBC as a highlight. I think NatWest and RBS did a similar thing back in February with around about 32 branches as well. But it's something, you know, it's happening more and more frequently, really. Um, It's a sort of a side of fintech that we rarely discuss. It's often New technologies based around improving processes and streamlining things and increasing margins. But ultimately, somewhere that involves a role disappearing or becoming redundant or surplus to requirements. And branches are often the, the, the first to be hit. And this sort of drive to online seems to eliminate the need, if you like, to face to face banking. But banks, much like, say, post office, used to form the, the core of the high street. I just look at it and, uh, you know, I wonder what the end game is and what the future looks like. Are we, are we really talking about no banks on the high street or is it kind of being handed over, that kind of physical presence being handed over to the supermarket banks? and Or will the post office be the kind of only high street presence there? It's just a, it's an interesting topic within there. As I said, just below 50% of the customers are using physical banking. That's still a high number <laughs> you know is it does that mean half of the country are, are still going into a bank it's just i look at it and um it's something that i just wonder how it's all going to pan out i'm kind of wondering and looking at it and thinking it you know is there a, a kind of a different role for a bank a physical bank a high street bank to play really a lot of the the banks and the inc- have their own incubators or accelerators but they're all based in the major city centres. And could these sort of shutter spaces be used uh, more as a, on a regional or community level? I'm sure there's loads of startups in the areas that would benefit from close ties to the bank. They could use these low-cost business spaces, you know, like a kind of a communal working or WeWork thing. And it doesn't really have to be like an Altisarian thing. Uh, NatWest do it really well in their incubator, and they're, sorry, their accelerator. They invite the young companies in and they watch and observe them and see what they can learn from them, really, and, and integrate these new ideas and these new companies into their processes. And when you look at 
resilience, operational resilience, these closing of the physical banks, uh, you know, the spaces, is almost in opposite to opposition to resilience, really. It assumes there'll not be another serious technology outage like there was in 2012. I mean, ultimately, that face-to-face bank activity would be the, the main fallback if, if there is a, a problem with technology. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see if the financial institutions, disaster recovery plans and business continuity plans have been updated to reflect the reduction in high street presence and if the bandwidth of the call centers, et cetera, has been scaled up and, and could be scaled up rapidly if there was a technology issue and if the call center staff have been trained to the same level as the bank staff. Because if you go into a branch, those people there, they know the product, they, they know the processes, they know the bank inside out. And I'm just wondering, has that knowledge transfer taken place? And more to the point, has it all been tested and made sure that it actually works? This move away from face-to-face increases dependence on technology and it arguably compounds the risks presented by technology. And then in turn sort of firms up the requirement for comprehensive scenario testing and resilience planning. You know, it's it's a really um, interesting point you've made there. I mean, as you mentioned, this is essentially the side of the coin, right? When it comes to increasing digitization, um, more people using online services, then um, it starts to obviously take a hit on the the brick and mortar kind of branch network as well. as well, it's not just kind of limited to banking, right? So we see a lot of um, retail kind of doing the same thing and the wider decline of the high street in the UK certainly has been well documented in the news recently. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting in terms of what the, as you mentioned, what the future kind of um, lies for banking in that sense. Um, going back to HSBC, their branch transformation program, as they're calling it, includes um, a wider package of support as well. They've mentioned community pop-ups, self-service machines, colleague-assisted digital options, and as you mentioned as well, post office presence. Um, so those are some of the options that uh, they're bringing in as as well as kind of uh, closing down those 69 branches, as you mentioned. Um one thing as well that's kind of come in, the government, as, as previously mentioned, potential legislation in the area as well to protect access to cash and initiatives like a cash back without a purchase at shops have been brought in. But recent research from which suggests that only 16% of shoppers know of this initiative at the moment, and which has been um, urging the government as well to take more action to make sure that um, access to cash is protected. Do you think we're approaching that point now where the government has to step in with some kind of legislation there and, and bring in um, initiatives? I know we've had post office mentioned there's shared service initiatives that's been brought out as well, but what do you make of that? Hmm, it's a good question. Do you know what? I wasn't a pr- aware of the cashback uh, without a purchase uh, initiative myself, to be honest with you. Um, it's a pretty good idea, pretty good idea. We stray, or we, we try to avoid regulating something like that to, from being a forced activity, but I think it should be looked at or incentivized, heavily incentivized to to ensure that right and access to cash is, remains there. So. It's a topic for discussion, really, isn't it? I'm sure there's other solutions other than regulating against it. So, But uh, it opens up a, a whole world of different uh, discussions, really. Cash the society and everything like that. <laughs> we could be here for hours, couldn't we, really? <laughs> we could, yeah. <laughs> we could. I, I mean, I, I guess as well, one of the things is communication, right? Because obviously that 16% that we just said today, obviously you've not been aware of it as well. So 
really banks and financial institutions and maybe the government as well um, making sure that the, the communication is in place to make sure that vulnerable customers and, and customers who are still using banking services can get the information that they need to kind of find these alternative options definitely so definitely so yeah 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 it's it's hard it's hard it's it's hard you know there's multi-channels of communication nowadays uh, it used to be stick something in the post and people read it spread it across television news social media all that kind of stuff there's no sort of defined method of communication any longer that reaches everybody it's tough communicating change uh, out there and ensuring people digest it in, in the way that's intended really isn't it Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview style section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. We're going to dive into the main topics in just a moment, but as always to start with, Wayne, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been up to at NCC. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. My role is Regulatory Compliance Solutions Lead. It's a pretty uh, unusual role. Uh, I'm not sure. It might not even exist anywhere else, really. Um, I, I sit within the Resilience Division, and we focus on technology escrow. And my role kind of straddles across the different business functions, but everything I'm involved with relates to financial services, regulatory change, so I touch on sales and strategy, product development, research, marketing, across every, all the different elements of the business. I, I handle our relationships with the global financial service regulators. I help to construct NCC's responses to consultation papers on outsourcing, third-party risk management, supply chain risk, and everything resilience, basically. I ensure our products uh, continue to meet global regulatory resilience requirements too so my md says uh, he wants me to operate as a bit of an escrow evangelist uh, my, my teenage daughter likes to think i'm a regulatory influencer um, but it's kind of researching and strategizing and then making sure all that work has some kind of impact there it's a bit vague that isn't it <laughs> I, mean, I, I really like the idea of regulatory influencer i think that'd be good we can get you get you set up on instagram and see uh, see how that goes i'm not sure um, how the, t- the tiktok element of it will work out but we'll, we'll be fine i'm kind of drowning in a sea of marketing buzzwords there but uh... <laughs> um, i mean one of the things you mentioned there was um resilience so uh, what does resilience mean to you then it is a it is a broad ranging term. It, it, I think it does need a a definition. Certainly in relation to fintech, I mean, you, you might be forgiven to thinking it's in direct opposition to the move fast and break things mantra. But you can still move fast, but you'll only ever break things if you start off in the wrong direction, and you won't really reach the right destination if you're ill-equipped for the journey. So, it's the core of resilience, I suppose, is look before you leap and. Uh, and whatever can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> my, my public affairs department, you know, coined the phrase, assume supplier failure by default. Uh, but I find that a little bit dark, really. But <laughs> um, if I was attempt to define it, I see resilience as four sort of stages of avoiding adversity. You, you, you kind of have like uh, resist, absorb, recover, and adapt. 
And everybody's really familiar with resist. It's, it's the one that everybody focuses on. It's tangible. It's easily understandable. In essence, it's the majority of cybersecurity. Cyber gets all the press, and rightly so. It's where the majority of the fences are. It's where the lion's share of the spending should be. Um, absorb, well, I suppose that would be considered your incident responses or managed detection and response, you know, when something does happen. Recover, uh, BCP or disaster recovery, that's really where your technology escrow fits in. And adapting, uh, well, that would be a review of all the lessons learned through those different processes and reviewing your policies, implementing revisions and strengthening feedback into your resist phrase. I was speaking to a, a core banking provider who moving to the cloud and, and I was kind of struggling to explain the need for escrow as part of their solution. It was about two years ago, I, I just threw out the phrase resilience by design and it really rank home with them. Everybody's familiar with security by design. It, it's just sort of a small leap of the imagination to that point of resilience. And everybody instantly gets what I'm talking about there. Although we've never really sort of mapped out what resilience by design could look like. And, you know, we've been using that phrase. As I said, it, it, it resonates with the financial institutions and, and the ISVs and, and the regulators. We include it, resilience by design, in all of our consultation responses to the financial services regulators to try and get a conversation going on what resilience actually is. I've noticed over the last sort of six or seven months, the likes of KPMG and Deloitte and EY have started having a few public discussions about what resilience by design means to them. I think there could be value in everybody sort of getting together and having a bit of an open discussion about what a resilience by design framework uh, should actually look like. It's, I'd say it's a discussion that, that needs to go on. It can be important going forward. I mean, if the 2008 crash was directly attributed to concentration of debt within a small set of lenders, what we've really done over the last 14 years is introduce a new set of concentration risks in, in the form of technology, technology providers, ultimately the cloud too. Excellent. And looking at software resilience then and software escrow, how important is this for companies and, and what benefits does escrow in particular provide? That's, that's, that sounds like a request for the uh, the elevator pitch. It, it, it's, it's, been, it's been a while, but uh, <laughs> I'll give it a go. I mean, the way to picture it is, is within your own personal organization, there'll be a series of applications that you completely depend upon. Just in your mind, think of the one that's most important to you personally. That goes down. It urgently needs fixing. But when you call the supplier up to fix it, they've gone out of business. What do you actually do? Or maybe they've not gone out of business. Maybe the quality of the service is deteriorated to an unacceptable level. Maybe it's always crashing. And the provider admits that they simply can't fix it. You know, how do you handle that? Or your provider gets bought by a competitor that's no, that have no intention of, of meeting the former supplier's contractual requirements. Maybe that competitor is another financial institution or another service provider that just wants to shelve the product and aggressively move you on to their new solution. What do you do? It's kind of this idea that there's a series of non-technical risks 
that are linked to using technology that can't be mitigated by any level of cybersecurity. You know, no firewall will protect you from political instability of the host nation and no amount of ethical hacking will protect you from supplier insolvency or a full spectrum attack scenario test won't mitigate against concentration risk. All familiar, particularly over the last couple of years of companies going out of business, but we rarely think of technology companies failing. And now the potential of it actually happening to someone big might be small, but the ramifications of it happening, are, particularly within financial services, the monumental really. The knock-on effects of it, uh, someone disappearing would be would be huge. If you think about maybe what if it's a, a treasury or reconciliations, ATM software, payroll, HR, or core banking provider, could be really detrimental to the world economy. And so that's what escrow does. It protects your right to continue usage of technology provided by a supplier who are all subject to the adverse effects of market forces. It can be small or large companies. And, uh, and what specific solutions does NCC provide then? And, and what are you doing differently from other companies in the space? What we do is under a technology uh, escrow agreement, we'll store the source code or, uh, and additionally, say for cloud services, we'll, if it's a single tenanted solution, we'll store the access credentials or multi-tenanted services. We'll uh, store a fresh instance of the, of the entire service spun down with all the, you know, all the necessary data that it's in there. We'll, document the build process from source code to working application, all the hardware and software used by the provider in that process. We'll put all that information together in a manual, give the owner a copy, give the licensee a copy, uh, and store a third copy of that document underneath the escrow agreement itself. For cloud services, we'll do all that, but we'll also test that the access credentials are stored under the agreement and updated in line with the software provider, service providers, password rotation policy, multi-tenanted, maybe we'll test the deployment, redeployment of the service into a cloud environment or completely map the architecture that's under there uh, in the cloud as well. So we'll document all that information, get everybody a copy, store it under the agreement. Those source codes, the access credentials, the fresh instances can only be accessed under a very specific set of release events. The, the owner fails, ceases to trade or bankruptcy administration, liquidation, etc. Or two, the, the owner fails to maintain, the, the, you know, they can no longer actually uh, keep the service running or the intellectual property rights of the software sold to another company, or the company itself is sold to another company. So if any of those instances happens, you'll get access to everything you need to keep the service running. If you like full shopping lists, in instruction manuals, access credentials, contact details for key members of staff, clean instances, and the data itself. So, And we can even test the financial institution's ability to handle that information or a, third, a designated third party's ability to handle that information. It's not something new. We've still got escrow agreements in place from the late 80s. So it's all tried and tested. It's all escrow is already extensively used by all the financial services industry pretty much globally. And, and that's kind of represented, we, you know, we have global coverage operating about 10 jurisdictions at the moment. The other side of it, we have a specific partner network that, uh, helps the suppliers, the ISVs, the other, the other parties that are involved in this to accommodate escrow agreements. And then when you combine 
all of that escrow presence with the other side of the NCC business, the cybersecurity and the consultancy service, I think we might be the only entity on the planet that can cover off and help with and accommodate all the different four stages of resilience, of resist and absorb and adapt and recover that, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we, we can do all elements of that. That's great. And regulations around um, outsourcing and third-party risk management from the PRA are due to come into effect this month on the 31st of March. So can you tell us a little bit more about these regulations and how they might impact banks and financial services firms? Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, uh, um, I, I mean, it dates back um, to 2019. The Future of Finance came, uh, report came out from the Bank of England and they were looking for a resilient financial services infrastructure. Um, there was a consultation uh, out there with the market, NCC responded, and a number of our assessor suggestions were included into the regulations on outsourcing and third-party risk management, which is also known as SS2-21. The core of the regulation looks for the financial institutions to mitigate against supplier failure, service deterioration, and concentration risk. If you want a quick concentration risk definition, I'd say there's five elements of it, really. Systemic risk, entity-level risk, activity risk, geographical or political risk, and because it's potentially a combination of all the four above, really, cloud or SaaS would be defined as a concentration risk. So the regulator is looking for the financial institutions to identify their material and risky suppliers and build out successful stressed exit plans that can cope with supplier failure. Those plans then need to fall within their own risk appetites and risk tolerances. The stressed exit plans, they've always got to remain proportional, as in cost-effective. The the cost of the mitigation can't outweigh the value of the service, but the stressed exit plans ultimately must enable the financial institutions to either bring the services back in-house or enable the financial institution to pass that service, or the management of that service, over to a third party to maintain on, on their behalf. The longest phase of a stressed exit plan really is just the financial institution's existing procurement process, that process of moving away from a failed supplier. You know, all, they've got to just identify an alternate supplier, due diligence, all, all that kind of stuff that goes on onboarding a new service. The temporary stage is the interesting one. You know, you've got to keep the lights on. You've got to keep that service running. Uh, whatever's in place needs to remain available, and the financial institution needs to ensure it can be maintained too until the new service is fully up and running. So, SS two slash two one mandates that you've got to have a plan on how to deal with a stressed exit. You've got to test that plan, and you've got to prove that the plan actually works to the regulator. So, any material application must have a stressed exit plan. Everything in the cloud must have the most resilient of resilience plans. As of the 31st of March, any new service that's introduced to the financial institution estate that uh, is material or has the potential to become material must have a stressed exit plan in place at the point of signature. It's a lot of change. Yeah, for sure. And so what do the banks then and other financial companies have to do to ensure they comply with these new regulations? And, and how is um, the work that NCC doing helping them to, to achieve this? There is a lot of work to do. Um, the Bank of England class these changes, regulatory changes as high. Ideally, the PRA would have liked every financial institution to have completed all the work 
by the 31st of March. The financial institutions seem to be looking to use the three-year transition period up to 2025 to get fully compliant, but I'm not sure they'll get the full three years to do that. I think, I believe the PRA are already uh, selected 25 financial institutions to take a look at and start testing their stressed exit plans as of April already. So the work of identifying the material suppliers should have already now been done. Uh, and submitted to the regulators, along with the understanding of the interconnected nature and the dependencies of those services on each other. External and internal communication plans should have already been completed as well. I suppose now it's the biggest bit of it. The stressed exit plans need to be built. They need to be tested, and the results of those tests need to be presented to the regulator. Short term, I mean, the procurement processes and existing license agreements need to be revisited the right to audit and, and request for stressed exit plans inserted into those at a contractual level. Unless you have a standardized process, this could end up being a long drawn out legal negotiation with individual suppliers, ultimately with a stressed exit plans differing from supplier to supplier. And as a supplier, as an ISV, do you really want a series of on, on-site client audits that differ from customer to customer? It's going to be a long drawn out process. Um, and, and you'll have to factor in as well, the financial institutions will have to factor in that some of these material suppliers will either be unwilling or unable to be party to a successful stress exit plan. And if that's the case, the regulator will need to be informed. There's some big decisions, there's some big discoveries that are going to go on in the coming months. And every financial institution, they've got to make that decision on do they want to try to manage that service themselves or if they can pass it to the to a third party i mean you said how do ncc services aim to to help i mean within ss21 ss2 slash 21 section 10.16 the the pra advises active consideration of technology escrow agreements as part of the temporary stages of a stressed exit plan it's a pretty strong recommendation off the bat so i'd say the start of that journey is to have a regular conversation uh, with NCC, uh, with their account manager. We'll document that conversation. Uh, That would arguably provide some proof of the initial stages of active consideration of escrow. It would certainly start to map out the financial institution's roadmap on that route to full compliance by the end of 2025. As I mentioned earlier, the, the core of the regulations are intended to mitigate against supplier failure service deterioration and concentration risk, well, they're the release events for escrow agreements. And the regulations insist that you must test the stressed exit plan to see if it works. Well, that's just a process of testing the deposits under the agreements, testing the bill processes, access, testing the access credentials or mapping out what's actually in the, in the cloud environment. The regulations look for proof that the plan works. The proof is that deliverable from the verification exercises, the verification reports, those verification reports can be included in the stressed exit plans that that are presented to the regulator. I think it's fair to point out too that technology escrow remains a proportional solution too. It isn't expensive. It's a standardized legal and technical process that's been used for decades. It's tried, it's tested, it's proven to work. I think that kind of goes a long way to explaining that active consideration recommendation from the regulator. 
And how do the PRA's regulation compare against regulations around the world? Are we starting to see a similar thing globally? We're seeing, a, we're seeing a, I'm not trying to overstate it, but the, the, there is a global shift going on at the moment to really look and investigate and mitigate against uh, supply chain risk. UK and, and Singapore are leading the way on this. Monetary Authority of Singapore are looking to take it a step further. They've asked Parliament recently for additional enforcement powers relating to third-party risk management planning. I assume they could carry some hefty fines. Central Bank of Ireland have just released their Operation Resilience Guidance back in December, within which there's wording around escrow, but it doesn't specifically name escrow. Their guidance will be reviewed once the EU's uh, Digital Operation Resilience Act is finalised in the next couple of years. Pakistan and India have made escrow uh, mandatory for business critical applications. New Zealand's had it in place for quite some time. CISA in the States, they advise that technology escrow should be a port of, in place as best practice as, as part of an effective ransomware recovery plan. NIST as well uh, included escrow for consideration in the NIST protocols back in uh, 2021 too. It seems like a lot of activity there. Um, so looking to the future then, do you anticipate more regulation and, and change in the space? Definitely, definitely across the board. And as I touched on there, DORA is going to be something pretty big across Europe. It's not fully signed off and completed as yet, but that'll, we'll, we'll get some more information. Uh, clarity on that in the next two years. Um, NCC, we're actually waiting for confirmation from OSFI in Canada on the redrafting of their B10 rule, which could include escrow. Those revised rules should be uh, released any day now. The OCC have recently closed their consultation on third-party risk. Interesting, the escrow has always been part of their recommendations, but the, the wording didn't really reflect the way financial institutions license business critical software. The OSCO have just closed their consultation on third-party resilience, uh, third-party risk and resilience. Financial Stability Board, European Systemic Risk Board, Bank of England, they're all looking pretty closely at now the prevalence of, of large suppliers within the cloud space. So it is one of the main areas of regulatory scrutiny going on at the moment. I think it will be for some time. I think the key is not to focus solely on the cyber angle solely on resisting and absorbing shock, you know, that the financial institutions need to plan on how to recover. I don't think we'll get to that stage of assuming supplier failure by default, but it needs to be in the thought processes, definitely. Here we are in part three of the podcast is the fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guests have seen or heard enough of. We will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already there, whether it needs an extended sentence. Or of course, our guests can argue to free one of the previously incarcerated terms. So Wayne, what buzzword or trendy topic have you brought along for us today? Do you know what? I was tempted to throw in the word cyber, but I'm not sure uh, how well throwing the majority of NCC's business in jail would go down with the higher echelons of NCC management. So we'll we'll not do that. Uh, I will go with a hyphenated term, multi-tenanted. 
What is it you're not a fan of multi-tenancy? Is it that the term is starting to diverge away from its true meaning for you now, or it's just becoming this, this word that's just used constantly for tech developments? I'm, I'm looking at it from a, a purely risk point of view. I'm looking at, right. at it from a systemic risk. I'm looking at it from resilience point of view, basically. So if cloud and SaaS presents a concentration risk, then multi-tenanted services, as in where multiple financial institutions use exactly the same instance of a service, well, that's a concentration risk within a concentration risk. As I see, you may have 10 banks in one region or 100 banks globally using this same instance. The data will be siloed and it will be separated, but essentially they're all using the same software at the same time. And should that supplier fail, it will simultaneously affect every customer. Now, across the UK and the world, really, everybody's building out these stressed exit plans for their applications. They'll have those working plans there to present to the regulator. But they're only looking at material applications. They're only looking at business-critical applications. And that materiality relates to the individual entity. It doesn't look at the system. So if a multi-tenanted solution is used by multiple UK financial institutions, it may not be material to the individual entity, but it could be systemic material, depending on the scale of usage. An outage across the market could have pretty large consequences. It, it could perform a pretty low-level function, but a number of institutions losing that at exactly the same time, it could be quite damaging. It, it really could. And then some institutions will say, well, we've got a single tenanted instance. Uh, you know, we've mitigated against that risk. But when we do the verification process here and we look at how that's structured, quite frequently a single tenanted solution isn't. We find there's shared services in the background being across multiple, used across multiple single tenancies. It's just a... It's a risk, and you know I'm most probably overthinking it there. But the, the recovery plan from a, a multi-tenanted service is is harder. It's still possible. It's it's still it's still all doable. We've still got the ability to service that. Um, when I speak to fintechs and financial institutions, I had a bank the other day that was um, talking about their cloud policy. I asked them, "What is your cloud policy?" And, and they said, "It's cloud first policy." But that was it. That was the entire plan. It was those three words. <laughs> uh, and, and he said, if you could give me one bit of advice. And I said, go for single tenancy. It's going to be more expensive in the short term. But when you're, you're building out your, your stressed exit plans and disaster recovery plans, it's much, much easier for you and cheaper for you to, to service in the long run. You make a make a very strong case for it there. Um, if we were to jail this term, then I mean, is is there anything you you want to replace it with, or just kind of get rid of it completely altogether? I don't think I don't think we get rid of it. Um, it's kind of the uh, it would involve in a way a, a fintech start. If you think about it, more tenancy is, is the perfect way for a company to grow, isn't it? A fintech to grow. You know, it keeps the, the costs down at one point of service. You can push upgrades through it. It helps them scale rapidly. But there is an argument for the case that it's not resilient long-term. Uh, I don't think you can get rid of it. And it has value. It, it, it definitely does for these applications that sort of operate horizontally across multiple markets. I would really just 
like a discussion to go on about that and what it looks like for the future, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. Um, I think what we can do, though, I did this earlier in the series, but maybe we can drop multi-tenancy into um, a holding cell initially. Um, and then if we have somebody later in the series then who wants to come along and, and, and fight for it and, and break it back out of the jail, then we can go ahead with that. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to Wayne again for joining me and, of course, to NCC Group for sponsoring this podcast. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and of course on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you again soon for another episode of What the Fintech, but until then, goodbye.